Welcome. You're listening to the Grow Ortho Podcast, presented by HIP. This podcast is dedicated to orthodontists who want to stand strong in their market and be leaders in their community. Now, on to today's show. So, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Luke, thanks for having me. Definitely. So, for those listening or watching who don't know you, um, just take a few minutes, give an intro of yourself, your company, hobbies, your your mission and purpose. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I have a law firm uh, with seven attorneys. We are focused exclusively in the healthcare space. And within that healthcare space, I'd say probably about 90% is representing dentists who are doing uh, business transactions, employment agreements, really all the non-litigation things that come up in the course of a, uh, of a dental practice. So we help people that are buying practices. We help people that are selling practices partnerships, buy-ins, lease reviews for, for startups and for office expansions. And um, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary of the firm. Nice. Um, this is Robert Montgomery. Yeah, which is time flies when you're having fun, Luke. Uh, and sometimes when you're not having as much fun. But I, I, <laughs> I, uh, all kidding aside, I've enjoyed having, uh, having my own practice and really have been focused pretty much in the dental world for just about all of my, uh, my, uh, my practice. Um, we're uh, best known to a lot of people through the URL for our website, which is yourdentallawyer.com. Um, we help people uh, around the country for the most part. We're not uh, helping folks in California at this time. That's one of the few major markets that we're, we're not involved in, but most other places uh, we're licensed or we work with people there that we're able to help our, our dental clients. And these days, as far as hobbies go, it kind of changes uh, seasonally and from year to year, Luke, but uh, kind of got back to my roots within the last year and doing a lot more open water swimming. Uh, so that's that's keeping me busy. These cool. Days. Nice. Uh, so I believe you have just a short disclaimer too, before we jump into the questions. Absolutely. Well, this is what you get when you have a lawyer on your <laughs> podcast, Luke. Of course. So we will talk about legal issues today. I want to make sure that everybody understands that this is for informational purposes only. And if you have a legal matter, you should seek the specific advice of a lawyer for your specific circumstance. And I will say that, Luke, from time to time, I've had conversations with people that have said, well, Rob, you said that we should do that, or you said we should do that. I'm looking back at my notes. and I don't remember this. I don't think this is something I would say <laughs> in these circumstances. Like, when did I tell you that? Well, that podcast, you said that. I'm like, no, 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 it's not right. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is, again, uh, just giving people general information. You know, you should always get specific advice from a lawyer. Definitely. Seek, uh, seek counsel from, yes. your, from your actual counsel. <laughs> yes. Cool. All right. Well, let's jump into the first question I have for you, which is, how do you find the right opportunity for buying a practice? You know, there's really no one size fits all. And it depends on a lot where you're located in the country, the type of practice that you're looking to buy. I think one of the, the most important things, though, is to be an active member in your dental professional community. Get to know the other professionals, uh, know the younger dentists who might be potential associates of yours in the future or buy-in candidates or partners, get to know the older dentists who may be selling at some point in time. I mean, I think overall, that's where the best relationships are, are forged. 
and it's the best place to start. Uh, absent that, you, you can work with brokers. If you're looking, especially in an area where you don't presently live, you're relocating to another part of the country. It's hard to be active in the in the Boise dental community if you're in uh, Detroit, for example. Yeah. Um, so, you know, working with a broker and if you're working with a broker, you know, several brokers you need to work with if you're in that instance, because unlike the real estate world where somebody lists their practice and all the realtors know that practice is for sale and they have the ability to help broker that, um, in the, the, the practice transition world, there's no such thing as a multiple listing. So, um, you have to go and really try to work with and network with all of the brokers so that they know who you are, uh, that you're looking to purchase a practice. And I think the more purposeful you are and the more you take care of all the, the background steps, the better candidate you'll be in, in, that, in that world because we're still very much in a seller's market. So anything that you can do to separate yourself from, we'll call it the competition for the practice acquisition, the better. Um, so we talk about developing bank relationships, being pre-approved, uh, those types of things that will kind of bump you to the front of the line and make you a more serious buyer. And um, that's what sellers and that's what sellers brokers are looking for in that instance. The other thing I would say too, is you can network with uh, other professionals in the, in the community, especially uh, dental supply reps, CPAs, people that have an inventory of potential uh, dental sellers. Awesome. Um, yeah, I would imagine there's a lot of ways to skin the cat, right? Um, you know, brokers, networking. I think there's even third-party agencies that may help or assist and work with brokers or attorneys. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how do you yeah, know? Look, let me say this too. Like one thing that you really shouldn't do as, as your primary way to find a practice is to surf websites and look at listings like that. I mean, yeah. that may initiate a conversation with a broker, but if you see a practice online that seems like a good one, chances are 20 other people have already reached out. So right. it's better to have that relationship with the broker that's got those listings so that before it hits the website, you know about that listing. Yeah, I've I've seen uh, orthodontists or, and dentists um, kind of try and, I guess, negotiate their own deal. And I don't know if that's right or wrong. I don't, I don't know enough about it, but I have seen um, bad deals, you know, mm. where um, the orthodontist or dentist gets into a situation and they didn't know all the details. Um, there were not proper contingencies in place or terms. Um, and I've also seen uh, acquisitions happen and then the practice just drops massively in production. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, what you're saying from what I've seen and the little I know, uh, working with an expert, whoever it is, just to ensure, you know, I'm sure attorneys, uh, brokers, et cetera, ensuring that both parties are protected. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, what you're really talking about is assembling the team. Mm. Uh, as a buyer, the broker really isn't part of your team. I mean, the broker is somebody that you network with for the opportunity, but you have to realize what everybody's role is here. The, the broker's role is to introduce a buyer and a seller and facilitate a transaction. It's not to look out for the buyer. Now, I'm not saying that brokers are you know, not, you know, they're doing sleazy things or they're not, or they're doing something that's predatory. 
But, you know, it's just, it's just like anything. It's not their job to look out for you, the buyer. The two key players uh, in a practice acquisition are your attorney and your CPA. And I really will tell you, Luke, if you work with a good dental-focused CPA and a good dental-focused lawyer, the, the chance and the risk of doing a bad deal becomes really, really small. You know, And anything less than working with good people who are experienced in both of those professions, then the risk level starts to increase. And yeah, you can do these things on your own because most dental practices and ortho practices are going to succeed. I mean, the default rate in these deals and in the industry on loans and leases is very, very low. However, you know, not defaulting is very different from thriving. And so just because you can buy a practice and uh, hypothetically, you know, pay a million dollars for it, and that after within a year, you've lost so many patients that it's worth $600,000, that's not a good deal. It's probably not a deal, though, that you're going to default on the loan, right? So um, you really want to set the table right, because for most people, these are what we refer to as one transactions. You will do this once in your professional career. You will not get a second bite of the apple. And if you're upside down the practice, it loses value. You can't just give it back. You can't sell a practice for less than what you paid for it in recent time if you still owe a lot of money in the loan. So it's really important to, uh, to take all that steps, work with the right team and prepare yourself and avail yourself of all the, the best advice that you can to reduce that risk. Yeah. And my next question, I think you somewhat answered it, uh, which is how do you know if you're overpaying for a practice? I would imagine, you know, that's part of the right team and, and the CPA as well. Is that right? It is. And, you know, I, even though I'm a lawyer, we'll probably spend uh, as much time on this podcast talking about the importance of a CPA in a deal as, as a lawyer. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I will say just philosophically, I don't like people to over obsess on the right purchase price. Okay. The more important component to me is what does the cash flow look like of the deal, the estimated post closing cash flow. And what we're talking about is if you pay X for this practice, you borrow Y, and the practice maintains the similar level of, uh, of revenue and profit, what will you expect to make? And so you may, if you have a deal where maybe you're quote unquote overpaying by $100,000, but from a cash flow standpoint, you're making $700,000 a year, that could be a better deal than quote unquote underpaying by $50,000 and making $300,000 a year. Okay. So the big, the big one for me is what does that cash flow look like? Now, though they become related. Things. I mean, if you wildly overpay for a practice, that means you're taking a much larger loan than you should be from a cash flow uh, revenue standpoint and profitability standpoint. And then that those two things do, do collide. But again, to me, the most important thing is if you're going to borrow $800,000 for this ortho practice acquisition, how much can you expect to make? And, and if you like that number, then that's a deal you should do. Um, and whether or not you may have overpaid a little bit in the long term, it may not matter. Uh, and so where we see people, one of the main 
places where we see people make the mistakes in this is where they're not working with a good dental focused CPA to tell them, hey, this is what you can expect to make after you purchase this practice, or even more dangerously, Luke, after you buy into this practice. Practice buy-ins partnerships are a lot trickier from a legal standpoint and certainly more complicated from a, a cash flow standpoint and from an accounting and due diligence standpoint. But the people that don't do that, you essentially are just picking what's behind door number two. You know, and you don't want to find out after you've paid $800,000 for a practice or for a 50% interest in a practice, find out six months later how much what that means to you from an economic standpoint. Because again, that's really just choosing what's behind door number two. Know going into the transaction that everything stays steady, like we talked about, I borrow this money, here's what I think I'm going to make. And then you make that informed decision. Because a lot of times people will come to us after the fact, not our clients, uh, and they'll say, uh, I thought I was going to make more money. You know, this practice is not doing so well. Uh, I really thought that I would make double that. Well, why did you think that, Doc? Well, I had a friend that did a similar deal in Austin, you know, and I thought that it would be the same thing in Minneapolis. No, no, these are two different practices. Just, you know, you can't, it's not one size fits all. So it's really, really important to, to, to make sure you avail yourself of that step. Because at the end of the day, whether you paid the right number or not, doesn't matter if you're not making enough money. Yeah. And just to go back again, my very limited experience in, in this topic, from what I've seen, the, the partnerships, acquisitions, uh, transitions that have been successful, specifically for, for a doctor uh, acquiring a practice is if they're a good culture fit. You know, if the, the current owner and the current team align with the um, prospective owner, you know, um, because I've seen where that doesn't happen and people just think, oh, well, this looks good on paper. And then they go in and the whole team quits, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so again, just from what I've seen, make sure that it is a culture fit that you possibly even your principles and ethics align. Um, so the transition is, is much easier. Um, that's my opinion, but that's what I've seen from, from deals that have gone uh, successful and and deals that have gone bad. So it's a great point, Luke. Because really, you're buying goodwill. You know, when mm -hmm. you look at the purchase price, it actually gets allocated in the agreement. Roughly eighty to eighty five percent of that purchase price is allocated towards goodwill, and the balance of it essentially to the the equipment and the furniture in the practice. Which you know, so it, this is about goodwill. And if you don't like the goodwill that you're buying, or it's not something that you really want where it's not going to jive and lead to a, a good transition, then it's not something you should do. So like where people, as you said, like they obsess or maybe over obsess about the numbers and then say, well, when I buy this practice, I'm going to change this. I'm going to cut these salaries. I'm going to fire this person. I'm going to get rid of this associate. I'm going to change this, this, and that. And at a certain point you've changed so much then it's like, well, why did you pay for this thing that you really didn't like? Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, comfortable. And my uh, industry longtime friend, uh, Jamie Amos, uh, the big you know, startup consultant likes to say, you know, a surfer, a, a surfer should buy a surfer dentist practice, right? So where you have that same philosophy that, hey, you know what, some days we may, we may call in, we may close the office early, our patients are going to go surfing, 
We're going to go surfing. Our staff wants to. You know, if you're a surfer, you can buy a surfer's practice. If you're not a surfer and you buy a surfer's practice and you say, wow, we've got this schedule. What do you mean? We're, we're canceling people the next two days. Like we've got we're fully booked and we're because the waves are big. Like I can't wrap my brain around that. So it's a funny uh, it's a funny metaphor, but I think, you know, it works. And so it really speaks to making sure that what you uh, what you're looking to do is consistent with what with what you're getting. Yeah. I, uh, I, I like that. And I may, uh, steal that and reuse it. That's a good one. Keeps it very simple to explain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about cash flow. You mentioned cash flow, analyzing the cash flow. What is a projected cash flow analysis? So cash projected cash flow analysis is where a CPA is going to look at previous performance of the practice, usually three years of revenue and expenses. Now, you know, as we sit here in 2022, there's a year in there that's a little bit of an outlier uh, in, in the world and in, in the industry. Um, but generally, you're looking at the last three years where, uh, and then you, you extrapolate that and say, if this continues at this pace, this is what you can expect to make from a profit standpoint. And then if you're paying uh, X number of dollars and borrowing that money from the bank, you have to pay the bank back. This is how much money cash flow will end up in your pocket at the end of the year. Got it. And you know, you mentioned last year being uh, tricky, just because for for most of the people I know, production was way up, and so collections are are higher this year, specifically in in orthodontic practices. Yeah. Um, but it seems like for the most part, everybody did really well last year, and you know, a lot of people have questions, and we're already seeing. Um, that that's probably not going to continue. And so, um, you know, since, since people are looking at the, the past three years, do you have any type of advice? You, you mentioned that it's very much a, a seller's market right now still. Um, is there any benefit, you know, to, to waiting and uh, continuing to uh, try to grow the practice? If you're on the fence, is now still a good time to, to pursue a deal? From, from a buyer standpoint, Luke? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a matter of timing for people. Um, you know, uh, the last three years were, were, there were two years of outliers, actually. You know, 2020 was a, a bad year and the negative 21 was probably unnaturally high. So yeah. I think it's really getting your arms around what realistically the practice is doing, looking at year to date in 2022, looking back at 2019. And again, I'm getting out of my lane here a little bit because this is really yeah. something an accountant does. But you know, it's, it's the importance of working with somebody that understands these changes in the industry that could come in and help you understand what is a realistic expectation. But, you know, it, it also depends kind of what the uh, what the margin is with the risk, Luke. You know, like if you're talking about, well, and from a cash flow standpoint, am I making 600 or 700? Maybe it's, it's hard to, to nail that down. But you know, if the associate is presently making $180,000 a year, then waiting two years and passing on something that might be 600 or 700 may not be in their best interest. So a lot of it is personal to the buyer and it depends on the particular practice that you're looking at, which is, again, this isn't, all this stuff is not one size fits all. Uh, and it's, it's working with your team who, who should understand what your goals are, where you are now, what you're looking to do. Uh, because you know, the cost of waiting is can be significant as well. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Have Have you uh, experienced uh, working with maybe some people who don't know if they're a good fit for buying and owning a practice and, you know, they're an associate, they're maybe questioning it. Are, are there certain things, characteristics um, that, that make someone more apt to do well uh, in owning a practice? I guess being an entrepreneur to some degree, business owner, um, yeah. what's your opinion around that? Yeah, I, I will tell you that most of the people that make it to us are entrepreneurial people that are focused, you know, that, that realize the importance of working and assembling uh, a team. And they're people that have done their homework. They've done their due diligence on their, their lawyers, their CPAs. They've availed themselves of the process. They've educated themselves. They've prepared themselves for practice ownership. That's, that's generally, that's our gang for the most part. Um, from time to time, we do get people that are a little bit more on the fence. Um, and, you know, what I would say is, you know, if you're not committed to this for the right reasons and you don't want to put that time in and that work in to learn about the process, to work hard, to, to help find the right practice, to put the time in to understand what you're getting, what your professionals are doing, why they're doing it, then you probably should think twice about whether or not this is the right thing to do. Um, you know, there, there's a lot more to owning a business than just hanging the sign outside as we, as we both yeah. know. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of time and there's a lot of work that goes into that. And if you're not really up to the task leading into the transaction, you're not going to be, you know, suddenly empowered after probably either. And, you know, and that's okay. You know, if you don't, right. if that's not something that you want to do for the right reasons, then, you know, it's not the right thing for you. I mean, I could tell you, as I said, I've had my own professional practice that I did as a startup 25 years ago. There have been good days and bad days, but I've always enjoyed the ability to practice the profession, how I want, when I want, with whom I want. I choose the people, the, the lawyers and the paralegals and the staff that I work with. I get to pick and choose who the clients are that we work with. That's, that's a great thing. Uh, and so, I mean, to me, I, you know, there would be no other alternative than, than owning a practice, but it's not for everybody. And it's, there's a lot of work that goes into, into practice ownership. There's a lot of headache and a lot of hassle. And if you're not up for that, you know, it's more than just collecting the money and, and depositing checks in the bank and getting paid. You know, there, you, you really have to want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some people who have avoided this, maybe they were on the fence or, you know, had a family member who was very successful doing it and decided not to do it, stay an associate. And, you know, those individuals do extremely well. Also, I think it's about, you know, knowing who you are, your goals, you know, maybe even what you're capable of um, and the lifestyle that you want, because while there could be potentially a bigger upside to owning a practice or a business, um, there's also a lot of risk, you know? Yeah. And so if you don't want to take that on, um, I think that's, that's a, a big factor as well. And there's no right or wrong. Like you said, it's, it's okay to be an associate or an employee or, or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's definitely not for everybody. Um, so in terms of scaling, let's say an orthodontist or dentist, um, has a successful thing, uh, going, they want to scale, let's just say, Maybe they want to they want to take over Austin. They're in the Austin market and just want to continue to scale and grow and do well. Um, from a structure standpoint, how should they structure that business? Maybe even 
uh, in the beginning to facilitate that type of growth? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's that much that you need to do from a structure standpoint immediately with, with practice number one. Um, but as you continue to grow, that's when you really need to be uh, working with your with your attorney and your CPA about what what the best thing is for you to do. I think you know it depends kind of what model they want. You know, if you're talking about somebody that wants to uh, to grow into a ten location business, for example. You know, you may want the ability to offer associates equity at the practice level uh, instead of at the overall enterprise level. So you may say, Dr. Smith, I want to incentivize her at office number two. Uh, we would like for her to be a 20% partner there. Um, and so in that regard, you would want office number two to be a standalone entity, perhaps, so that each of your offices, you have the ability to offer individuals, your dentists, equity in that particular office instead of the, the overall. That, that's one of the things to, to keep in mind. And I guess that gets impacted by how you, what you do on the earlier stages. So it's probably a conversation that you should be having with, with counsel and your CPA when it comes time for office number two. You know, and Got it. You know, should we be buying that office or starting that office with our existing entity? Should we be forming a new entity? What are the pros and cons? Same thing, office two, office three. And, and down the line. Are there any differences when you're maybe looking to go horizontal into multi-specialty? So bringing in uh, pediatric dentistry or oral surgery, or maybe even a different specialty, perio, endo, um, any type of, of difference in terms of structure, bringing that uh, all under one roof? Yeah, I think you have to be careful about the different economics of the different specialties. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, endodontists and orthodontists are both specialists in the dental world. Right? The businesses are entirely different. You know, uh, cost of overhead, how you how you staff, how you render you know, treat patients, and so you know how they get compensated should be different. And there's there's things that you need to you need to be aware of. But I mean, we certainly are seeing more and more uh, specialists uh, or, or group practices that are multi-specialty practices. I mean, one of the things that is, can be challenging with that is, you know, if you are uh, going to own a multi-specialty practice and you don't have multi-specialty partners, what are you going to do when your oral surgeon leaves or your pedodontist leaves? These are associates. You know, are you going to be able to replace those people? And, you know, it's even worse in a lot of respects if you flip it, you know. So if a general dentist has a practice that also has, you know, ortho and pedo and they lose their ortho, who's going to complete the work, you know? And so there's just some planning that needs to go in that that's both uh, financial, economic, but then also clinical as well, just to deal with the fact that, you know, obviously you have an ongoing ethical responsibility to your patients to, to be able to treat them. And if you don't have a partner there who's able to, who's, who you know is going to be around and always there to do that, what is your, your plan, your succession plan when, when an associate leaves, when you can't replace their production? Yeah, I would say, you know, again, my, my limited expertise, but just from what I've seen, uh, sometimes orthodontist or dentist, uh, in this case specifically, I've seen orthodontists try to bring in a different specialty and it wasn't really strategic. Obviously it makes sense, right? Uh, you can refer between 
the doctor. So you have that cross-selling aspect. You're able to offer the patient more. Um, but like you said, uh, you know, maybe the oral surgeon left or the pediatric dentist left. Um, and then it becomes really kind of a problem and a time suck because now you have to replace that person. You've got to do interviews. Um, you've, you've got to figure out how to, um, you know, uh, translate that and, uh, get that word out to the patients. And so what I've seen is, and what I always tell people is, Hey, what if you just got more in this case, uh, orthodontic starts? What if you just, you know, you've got a great thing going. What if you just did five or 10 more starts a month? And a lot of times, um, you know, obviously it depends on goals and if there is the right partner, that's a, that's a different story. But, you know, I would urge people to really think about if they've got a great thing going and they're niche down, uh, you know, there's a, a simple uh, saying there's riches in the niches. And I really believe that. So if you're niche down and it's working, um, you may want to just continue that. Uh, unless there is the right type of partnership and a, and a great deal and it's strategic. Um, again, just my advice, but I've, I've seen some things kind of go wrong and then people are in a bind, um, you know, so wanted to share that. Um, anything else you would want to share before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. Like, I mean, I think that that's, uh, you know, what you're saying there is, 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 is a great thing. And I've seen that over the years, yeah. the last 25 years that, I think sometimes people just get bored with what they're doing and they think like, well, you know, I'll just oh, do yeah. this and I'll be equally successful with that. But, um, you know, the, the reality is, you know, if, if you're bored with running your ortho practice, then, you know, have a hobby and continue yeah. to make a lot of money and do and render the best and build the best systems and, and, and practice that you can, because, you know, you stick to what you're good at, you know, generally good things are going to happen. You know, um, I think just in closing, I would say to just kind of be careful to the the people that are buying into practices now, you know, the, the folks that are transitioning into, into practice ownership. Uh, what we've really seen over the last few years is a somewhat disturbing trend of buy-ins and equity buy-ins as part of a big corporate group, you know, where uh, a younger associate is owning 10 to 20% of a particular location where they work, something along the lines of what I talked about a few minutes ago. It's a little different in an owner-operator context. I mean, that's a, it's a situation that could lead to a future practice transition. But if you're not going to ultimately be able to buy the practice outright or the enterprise outright, you really have to be careful as an associate that's in buying into one of those because in a lot of respects, those deals are often structured in a very predatory way. Uh, they're put together and the documents are put together by very sophisticated counsel who are looking to, quote unquote, win the transaction for their DSO corporate client. And uh, it can be something that's very penal to the dentist, the associate who's, who's contemplating those where you're not able to leave or you're not able to get your money back or you have just an exorbitant uh, uh, covenant not to compete that you, know, you really can, can stymie your, your future ability to, to own and, and practice your profession. And so those types of deals, I will caution people, and this is sort of my soapbox these days, Luke, that you really, really have to be careful what you're doing. You know, are you really a partner in this enterprise or did you just basically guarantee 
that they'll always have you there and essentially chain yourself to the practice. And, and there's a difference between that and a true partnership and an owner operator deal. So yeah, when it comes to that. Yeah. Make sure it's good for, for you as well as them, both parties. If it's, if it's not a good deal for everybody, it's, it's not a good deal. Um, Thanks for sharing that. So if an orthodontist or dentist listening today would like to get a hold of you, ask you more questions, possibly even work with you guys, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out? Really to go to our website, uh, yourdentallawyer.com. Um, there is a uh, contact us in a, in a portal there where you could submit uh, questions and uh, let us know what you're looking to do. And then uh, someone from my office will get back to you and just talk about the transaction and explain what the process is and answer questions. And um, we also have links to uh, webinars and podcasts and other good stuff on the uh, website, which we're in the process of redesigning uh, an ongoing thing, but um, there's lots of good stuff there, which I think as we talk about, you know, I think Dennis, they're uh, contemplating transitioning into practice ownership. There's so many good resources out there with podcasts and blogs that you really can avail yourself and understand what you're doing and and become a more educated consumer and more educated as a future practice owner. That being said, Luke, these are not substitutes for assembling a team. This is one of those places where I really caution people about DIYing it. Um, Mm -hmm. You can listen to all the podcasts in the world, read all the blog articles, take CEs, and ultimately you still need to have a good professional team. But you certainly will understand better and be a better decision maker if you avail yourself of all that. And there's so much of it is out there and so much of it is free, which uh, is a great resource for people these days. Yeah, great. Well, I've learned a lot just from the short time that we've talked. So I really appreciate it. I know listeners are going to appreciate it as well. So thanks for much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Luke. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about HIP or any of the topics in this episode, send an email to hello at hipcreativeinc.com. That's hello at hipcreativeinc.com or jump over to our website at hip.agency.